All right, let's get started this morning. All right. So this morning, we are going to be talking about diagnoses. We're going to be talking about the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which you may have heard of kind of like uh, the Bible of mental health diseases, where they describe uh, the various diagnoses. We're going to talk about kind of the rising prevalence of diagnosing mental health issues, things like that. Um, And then... Uh, we will talk a little bit about how we respond to someone who has a diagnosis. So let's start with a word of prayer, and we will dive into our study this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, we are so thankful that we have the privilege to uh, understand the human condition through your revelation of yourself and your work with your creation. Uh, Lord, we would be uh, blind men seeking in the dark to understand what we could not possibly understand if you had not revealed yourself to us. Uh, Yet, you did not merely create us and leave us to figure out things with our limited knowledge, limited perception, limited ability to understand, but instead, uh, you wrote us a book through uh, inspiration so that we can see accurately and truly who we are, so we can understand the things that we cannot observe with our five senses so that we can know you most significantly. And I thank you for that. And as we seek to bring your revelation to bear on some of the harder circumstances and situations of life in the world, I pray that we would have clarity and understanding uh, through what you have told us, that we would have the right relationship uh, with a society around us that does desire to uh, see people not suffer, but may in that desire uh, mishandle, misunderstand, and even sin uh, because of their lack of knowledge of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we talk about diagnoses, we first need to understand, and this is really foundational, what is a diagnosis? Now, I'm sure we have all had diagnoses. It's one of those weird plurals, right? I'm sure we've all had diagnoses of various ailments and maladies in our life. Uh, When I was 23 years old, I'd been married for three months to the day. I was supposed to go to my mother-in-law's house for for dinner, and I started feeling a stomachache. And I thought this was just my body cooperating with my desire to not go to my mother-in-law's, and like that this was like some psychosomatic disease that my body had created to allow me a little freedom that night. And I just mostly ignored it, but I did take advantage of the gift my body was giving, and we stayed home. And the next morning, woke up, didn't feel much better. All day Saturday, didn't feel great. Saturday night, didn't sleep at all. Sunday morning, I, I wake, wake up, never fell asleep, and I knew something was wrong. Turns out my appendix had ruptured, and that's not a thing you're supposed to just try and shake off, I guess. And so go to the hospital have surgery. I was in the hospital for eight days because, again, not supposed to just try and shake that one off. Uh, and so I was in the hospital for eight days, and it was, it was quite the uh, experience. When I went into the hospital, the first thing they do is take me into triage and decide, is this a guy with a real problem? Is this a guy with what, what's going on? Then when I almost passed out because my blood pressure was so low, they, they elevated me up the path, did some scans, things like that. What, what they're doing is saying, here's the symptoms. Now can we look inside the person, see what's going on, understand what is happening here? That's a, that's a diagnosis. It's trying to understand 
uh, a group of systems, uh, of, of symptoms, and uh, look at observational things as well. And mental health, that's also what they're doing. We're trying to, uh, mental health, uh, mental health therapist, psychiatrist, whatever, is going to interact with that person, listen to their experiences, listen to their symptoms, take all those symptoms, put them in a bucket and say, look, this bucket is called this. This bucket is called this. You have this, 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 and this characteristic. Therefore, you have this diagnosis. And so when you read the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, it's just a big, long series of buckets saying if this describes this person, they are this. If this describes this person, they are this. If this describes this person, they are this. Uh, diagnosis has developed, though, in the past century, moving from describing psychosis to more ordinary suffering. So if you were to look at the DSM-1, right now we're on the DSM-5. If you were to look at the DSM-1, it's a short little booklet, like 70 or 80 pages. It's not very long at all. If you were to look at the DSM-5, it is not a short little booklet. It is a giant forklift carryable book. It's, it's something like 800 pages or something long. Why has it changed? Well, we've added a lot of diagnoses and we've also developed more things that it's gonna talk about with each diagnosis, so it's expanded. If you were to go back 100 years or so, someone being diagnosed with a mental illness would likely be some form of psychosis. Okay, when I say psychosis, I'm referring to a, a issue in your mind that causes a break from real reality. So someone who is psychotic is the person walking down the street screaming at the sky, right? They are disconnected from reality. That would have been the dominant type of mental health diagnosis 100 years ago. This person is psychotic. They have broken from reality. We might even, of course, this would not be the term that would be uh, accepted. We would say a crazy person. Right? They're just completely disconnected from reality. Over the past hundred years or so, that has increasingly changed. At, one, at that point in time, uh, mental health would be treated as being on a spectrum, like from more crazy to less crazy. And maybe you're over here. We're all somewhere on the spectrum. Some of us are more over here. Some of us are more over here. Over time, that has changed. And now, instead of a spectrum, it's a bunch of buckets. You're here, you're here, you're here. Instead of being psychosis and non-psychosis, it is now, here is the unique pattern of thinking that you have. And so that's been a change as we've moved to a more and more diagnostic model in the secular mental health world. And the DSM-5 is the book that categorizes those. Here is the definition the DSM-5 gives on page 20 for what a mental disorder is. A mental disorder is a syndrome characterized by clinically significant disturbance in an individual's cognition, emotional regulation, or behavior that reflects a dysfunction in the psychological, biological, or developmental processes underlying mental functioning. Mental disorders are associated with significant distress or disability in social, occupational, or other important activities, an expectable or culturally approved response to a common stressor or loss, such as the death of a loved one, is not a mental disorder. Socially deviant behavior, political, religious, or sexual, and conflicts that are primarily between the individual and society are not mental disorders unless the deviance or conflict results from a dysfunction of the individual as described above. So. 
you can get that tattooed if you'd like. Um, and that would help you understand all of this. So that, that's a kind of long definition, but what they're saying is that it is a syndrome. It is something that is characterized by a disturbance in thinking, emotions, and behavior. And that disturbance is a product of dis internal dysfunction. It is not simply responding to an issue. It's not simply being countercultural. It's, it's something that's dysfunctional about them. And then they go on to list off a wide variety of uh, diagnoses. A di diagnoses attempt to categorize a range of symptoms into a coherent unit. So that bucket taking, here's all these different symptoms. Let's lump them all together. We see that this person has all of them. Here is this bucket that they have. Now, someone might be carrying a couple buckets. Okay, like you, you've heard of uh, multiple diagnoses. People who say, I have three or four mental illnesses. Some of the diagnoses go along with one another pretty well. And so there's actually a section on comorbidities in each uh, diagnostic category that says, all right, if you have obsessive compulsive disorder, it's also likely that you have generalized anxiety disorder, right? These two things tend to go together, but they're taking the symptoms, they're putting them in these different buckets. Now, categorizing things is actually a mental tool we all use in order to make sense of a complex world that we live in. It's not bad to categorize things. In fact, it's absolutely essential. And we are very quick at making the judgments necessary to categorize someone. So, for example, if you're out in public and you look at a person, you immediately can categorize them in a bunch of big ways that are actually making small calculations internally that you don't even think about. So when you look at someone, you can observe they are around this many years old. You're not looking at them and saying, okay, those wrinkles are set in at this many millimeters around their eyes, but I actually can't feel the wrinkles. The shadows around their eyes are this dark. Therefore, that's telling me there's this wrinkle that's this deep. That depth of wrinkle is generally associated with a person between the ages of 50 and 60. Therefore, I am going to judge that this person is in their 50s. That's not how you think about it, but you can walk up to just about any person and be like, I bet they're in their 50s. And you make those categorical judgments because we need that to make sense of the world. And they actually make sense in these sorts of things saying, okay, this is a category of person. They're similar to other people. The tools I've learned for dealing with them here can help me dealing with this new person that has the similar categories, right? There's nothing wrong about that as long as we're not completely reducing the person to the category, or as long as we're not getting the categories wrong, but there are all sorts of ways that we can do wrong with categorizing like that. Currently, most mental health diagnoses are dependent on behavioral observation and self-report rather than objective measurements. As you, and we're about to open up the DSM-5 and look at a couple disorders, you will notice the diagnostic characteristics, the, the, the symptoms are all observe, observation of behavior or someone's self-reporting of behavior. Especially when we're dealing with emotional issues, that's really hard to do. How do you feel? Have you ever had a point where you're trying to think of how you feel and you don't exactly know the answer to that question? Uh, I mean, I, I see it in uh, my kids sometimes, especially uh, the girl. Why are you sad? I don't know, I just feel like I need to be sad. <laughs> okay, good, I'm glad I could uh, get clarity on this. Hope I can help you, right? And of course, I also do the same thing sometimes, right? Where we're just like, I don't understand the complexities of my feeling. And 
then it's based on complete self-reporting. Anytime you've interacted with people, you know that people are not always the most reliable recorders of what's happening or what they're thinking. Uh, and so, but that's the basis of it. Most of the disorders that you find in the DSM-5 are not disorders that we have a medical test for. So if someone says, I have depression, they cannot take a blood test and confirm that they have de depression. There's no brain scan that confirms that they have depression. It is simply self-reporting. And the question is, do they experience this? How often do they experience this? Okay, then they have depression. Two people might experience the same thing and define it in different terms. And one gets diagnosed and one doesn't get diagnosed. And they're both experiencing the exact same things, right? Because it's subjective, it's self-reported, it is not testable. Does that mean that we will never find tests for some of these things? Well, I, I don't know, right? But the, we, have, we understand diseases that exist today that we didn't know existed 100 years ago, right? So that could continue happening. But right now, as it stands, when people talk about mental health disorders, the vast majority of them, with exceptions for things like um, uh, Alzheimer's, the vast majority of them are self-reported descriptions of symptoms that then uh, a doctor would look at and categorize together. Diagnoses simply describe what is happening and do not describe what causes disorder. If you get one thing fundamentally about the mental health world, this is the thing to get. When someone says, uh, or when a doctor says, I'm diagnosing you with depression, they are not explaining anything. They are describing something. They cannot explain the why of depression, only these are the things you're experiencing, we call that depression. They cannot say you are depressed because this chemical imbalance. They say, we think, if you watch a depression commercial, we'll watch one next week, we think that it might be because of this. Like chemical imbalance, it is literally, we think that might explain. That is all that's going on there, that's all the evidence for the chemical imbalance thing. They've treated something that makes chemicals change and some people describe being better after having that chemical change. Therefore, it might be a chemical imbalance that causes depression. That's all that's going on there. And so it's not explaining. But so often I think particularly individuals who receive a diagnosis treat it as an explanation rather than a description. So take one of the personality disorders. We're about to read borderline personality disorders uh, uh, symptoms. A person hears that and says, okay, I have borderline personality disorder. Now my whole life makes sense. But it doesn't actually explain anything. It just says you're doing these things and other people do those things too. And we've come up with a name for the things that you and other people do. It, it does not give an explanation. It merely gives a description. A scientific test will not explain what happens in the heart of man. And these things are a complex relationship between heart and body, if there is body involved at all. There are plenty of times where there is. There are plenty of times where there isn't. But science is not going to grant us the answer to the idols of our heart. It cannot explain these things away. It can only describe what we do. Simply describes what's happening, does not describe what causes a disorder. We should not confuse the symptoms with an explanation for what's going on. So I'm going to describe something to you. I want you to tell me what I'm describing. A churning feeling in your stomach, 
tightness in your chest, an increase in rapid heartbeat, weak legs, tense muscles, you feel hot, sweating, especially your palms, pounding head, shaking, trembling, dizziness, reduced control of speech, raised voice, shaky voice, attacking others verbally and physically. It's anger. Now, if I were talking to my child and I say, why are you angry? And had in response, because my voice is shaking, my blood pressure is elevated, my face is flushed, that is why I am angry. We all know that's, no, 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 stop. You're describing what anger is, not why you're angry. That's what diagnoses do. They don't say, this is why you feel this way. They simply say, this is what you are feeling. We cannot flip those on their head. And so much of what we hear on street level and mental health when people talk about their diagnoses is they are flipping an explanation and a description. They're saying, I feel this way because I am depressed. No, you feel depressed. Why do you feel depressed? Is it biological? Maybe. Is it behavioral? Maybe. Is it cognitive? Maybe. I feel depressed doesn't answer that question. It simply says, okay, now we should think about the why. Why is this happening? But we often treat it simply as what and believe it's why. So let me read a few diagnoses. We'll start at kind of the ones that feel the most disconnected from our reality and move towards ones that are a little more connected. Schizophrenia. Two or more of the following, each present for a significant portion of time during a one-month period or less if successfully treated, at least one of these must be one, two, or three. Delusions, hallucination, disorganized speech, or frequent derailment or incoherence, grossly disorganized or catatonic behavior, negative symptoms, i.e. diminished emotional expression and abolition. All right, so they need to have at least two of delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, disorganized behavior, or negative symptoms. And at least one of them needs to be either delusions, hallucinations, or disorganized speech. Okay, so for someone to be diagnosed with schizophrenia, that's one of the characteristics. B, for a significant portion of time since the onset of the disturbance, level of functioning in one or more major areas such as work, interpersonal relations, or self-care is markedly below the level achieved prior to the onset or when the onset is in childhood or adolescence, there is failure to achieve expected level of interpersonal, academic, or occupational functioning. So they need to have these symptoms and these symptoms need to be stopping them from leading a life that is as balanced as they were before the symptoms or if they're kids, as balanced as you would expect for a child of that age, all right? So if your three-year-old can't hold a job, it's probably not mental illness, right? That's just normal. Uh, C, continuous signs of the disturbance persist for at least six months. This six-month period must include at least one month of symptoms or less if successfully treated that meet criterion A, i.e. active phase symptoms, and may include periods of prodromal or residual symptoms. During these prodromal or residual periods, the signs of the disturbance may be manifested by only negative symptoms or by two or more symptoms listed in criterion A, present in attenuated forms, odd beliefs, unusual per per perceptual experiences. All right, so you need to have these symptoms. Those symptoms need to be affecting your life 
and they need to be ongoing, not just like one day or something like that. They have to be ongoing. They can fluctuate up and down, but they have to be ongoing. D, schizoaffective disorder and depressive or bipolar disorder with psychotic features have been ruled out because either no major depressive or manic episodes have concurred, occurred concurrently with the active phase symptoms or two, if mood episodes have occurred during active phase symptoms, they have been present for a minority of the total duration of the active and residual periods of the illness. All right, that one, it can't be these other diseases that might look the same, right? So they're saying, they're not saying, well, everyone has schizophrenia. If your symptoms are better explained by another disease, then we're not going to say that it's schizophrenia. So you almost see a hierarchy there, right? Like if we have an easier diagnosis, we're going to go with the easier diagnosis first before we go with the, the big boys. Uh, e, the disturbance is not attributable to the physiological effects of a substance or another medical condition. So if you're on meth and you're having hallucinations, we're not going to say you have schizophrenia because you're on meth. Like that, the, there's a cause and effect situation here. We don't need a mental health diagnosis for something that's explained by a substance. Uh, finally, if there is a history of autism spectrum disorder or a communication disorder of childhood onset, the additional diagnosis of schizophrenia is made only if prominent delusions or hallucinations in addition to other required symptoms of schizophrenia are also present for at least one month. So autism would have some of the, the speech, the behavioral uh, symptoms might correspond. So we need to make sure that there's delusions there and we're not diagnosing autistic children, uh, autistic individuals as schizophrenic. All right, so that gives you a good rundown of one of the really serious diseases. And I think it does some to defend from some of the unfair accusations someone might make on the DSM. They're not trying to diagnose everything with the worst diseases, right? They put quite a few guardrails in to say, if this is happening, it's not this. If this is happening, it's not this. But it is simply a, section, a description of symptoms. When we're on these more intense type of mental health diseases, it doesn't feel quite as off-putting, right? We're, we'll get off-putting. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder, all right? So moving a little bit more towards the ordinary from schizophrenia. Presence of obsessions, compulsions, or both Obsessions are defined by one and two, recurrent, persistent thoughts, urges, or images that are experienced at some time during the disturbance as intrusive and unwanted and that in most individuals cause marked anxiety or distress, or the individual attempts to ignore or suppress such thoughts, urges, or images, or to neutralize them with some other thought or action, i.e. by performing a compulsion. So someone consistently thinks that they are diseased, that they're very dirty, and they try and reduce that obsession with the compulsion of washing their hands lots and lots and lots of times, okay? So that's the kind of the, the baseline there. Um, compulsions are defined by one and two, repetitive behaviors, hand washing, ordering, checking, mental acts, praying, counting, repeating words silently that the individual feels driven to perform in response to an obsession or according to rules that must be applied rigidly. Behaviors or mental acts are aimed at preventing or reducing anxiety or distress or preventing some dreaded event or situation. However, these behaviors or mental acts are not connected in a realistic way with what they are designed to neutralize or prevent or are clearly excessive. So for example, if you are a parachute technician and you repeatedly check that the parachute is properly folded, stored, and ready to go, that's not obsessive compulsive disorder, that's doing your job. 
If, however, you are scared of a disease and so you wash your hands every 30 seconds, that's not having a realistic effect on your fear, right? So that's what makes it a, a disorder. The obsessions or compulsions are time consuming. For example, take more than one hour per day or cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. Right? So someone with obsessive compulsive disorder, it has to affect how they live. So the fact that you like your house to be clean does not mean you have obsessive compulsive disorder. Right? There might be a way in which obsessive compulsive disorder would manifest itself and they desire to have a clean house. But simply being one of those people whose house is, all, as house is always clean does not mean that you have OCD because it's not dramatically affecting your life negatively. Uh, the obsessive compulsive symptoms are not attributable to the physiological effects of a substance or another medical condition. We've already heard that one, exactly those words. All right, if you have a drug that makes you OCD, I don't know which one does that, uh, but if it's a result of taking a substance, it's not this disease. Um, the disturbance is not better explained by the symptoms of another mental disorder. Okay, so again, just like we talked about before, if there are better explaining disorders, we go to those first, not to, to this one. And then you, you also have some specific, specifications. Uh, is it OCD with good or fair insight? The individual recognizes that the obsessive compulsive disorder beliefs are definitely or probably not true, or they may or may not be true. Okay, so they wanna be specific. Does this person understand that washing their hands isn't working, that they aren't likely to have a disease, but they just can't shake that thought? Or is it someone who, is, has poor insight. The individual thinks obsessive compulsive disorder beliefs are probably true, okay? So that's gonna uh, affect someone. So uh, you might have someone who has uh, obsessive compulsive uh, anxiety about driving and that person has good insight. They know that they're not likely to get in a car accident every time they drive, but they still feel like they're gonna get in a car accident and they recognize the disconnect. That would be having good insight. Um, with absent insight or delusional beliefs, the individual is completely convinced that obsessive compulsive disorder beliefs are true. Not, they might be true, they are true. Okay, so again, you see the categories. This is what would render someone diagnosed as obsessive compulsive. Now we're gonna get into a personality disorder. This is where you start getting into the things where we treat this as too much of an explanation rather than a description. Think OCD might be something like that as well. Uh, there, there's gonna be, it's on a continuum. But here, dependent personality disorder, a pervasive and excessive need to be taken care of that leads to submissive and clinging behavior and fears of separation beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts as indicated by five or more of the following. Has difficulty making everyday decisions without an excessive amount of advice and reassurance from others. Needs others to assume responsibility for most major areas of his or her life has difficulty expressing disagreement with others because of fear or loss of support or approval, and this does not include realistic fears of retribution, has difficulty initiating projects or doing things on his or her own because of a lack of self-confidence and judgment or abilities rather than lack of motivation or energy, goes to excessive lengths to obtain nurturance and support from others to the point of volunteering to do things that are unpleasant feels uncomfortable or helpless when alone because of exaggerated fears of being unable to care for himself or herself. Urgently seeks another relationship as a source of care or support when a close relationship ends, is unrealistically preoccupied with fears of being left to take care of himself or herself. So you see how we're moving down a continuum here? Like these are just kind of, some of you are probably like, 
<laughs> I'm ill. <laughs> I, as I was reading uh, uh, one, I, I sent one to my wife. I won't even say which one. She told me I shouldn't tell the whole story. So I sent one. I'm like, it's your dad. <laughs> and I say that not because her dad is mentally ill. Her dad is a normally functioning human being. But he's quirky. And so are you. If you open the personality disorders, you will find battles with sin that you have. So, I hope you see there that diagnoses are not all these terrifying things where someone has like, okay, these are my symptoms, therefore I am not for you to help. Right? Where that it's completely othering. So, let's actually take some time to evaluate the goodness of a diagnosis. Possible dangers of diagnoses. First of all, excusing sin. Excusing sin. A whole lot of those dependent personality disorder symptoms, the Bible has a word for them. They are sin. Right? Obsessive compulsive disorder, frequent washing your hands, is not necessarily inherently sinful. The Bible does not give a number of times you're allowed to wash your hands. Is there an idolatry or a faithlessness at the heart of that compulsion? It may very well be. And so if we get to a place where we're diagnosing an illness instead of dealing with the heart of idolatry and faithlessness, we are excusing sin rather than dealing with sin. Right. And so a diagnosis can be a tool to cover sin and make sin feel like it's just who I am. Well, yeah, it kind of is. But that means you need to repent, right? So there's a call to repentance. Uh, another danger. It gives us the appearance of understanding, which ends investigation. The appearance of understanding. So if I can say, all right, I'm dealing with my child. My child is uh, having this pattern of behavior. I'm concerned about this pattern of behavior. I go talk to my doctor. The doctor says, ah, yes, that set of symptoms is this. I'm like, okay, now I understand it. My child has generalized anxiety disorder. Good, solved it. Right, That's, that would be horrible. But it gives us the sense that we don't have to get to the heart anymore because we've already understood it. We've already explained the sickness. We've already explained the disorder. Because it is this. That's right there connected to uh, inverting descriptions and explanations. Right? Where we think, okay, now I understand why my child is functioning the way they are functioning. No, you don't. You understand how your child is functioning. There is a heart behind that that we have to get to. Number three, validating cultural rebellion through faux medical understanding. Just look at the change and homosexuality in the diagnostic manual, gender dysphoria, all those things. If we can say that this is just an illness, then it can be a way of culturally accepting it. And then eventually it's not even an illness, it's just normal. But it can be nothing happens without a worldview. Nothing is morally neutral. So these diagnoses can be a way to move culture. That doesn't necessarily mean the person writing the DSM-5 has some nefarious idea that they're going to figure out how to make uh, uh, transgenderism become dominantly accepted in our society. But the underlying commitments, uh, there's a connection. Like, we got here 
over 300 years of changing how we think about philosophy and psychology and humanity, and we have ended up where we are on the transgender movement. It happens gradually in small ways, often not intentionally. No one's thinking this is where we're headed, but the faux scientific nature of the DSM-5 can validate cultural rebellion as just being the way I am. It's just the way I am, and we ought to be cautious of that. This is a big one and one that I think is easy to miss. Dehumanizing the sufferer, or as, uh, as um, Michael Imlet phrases it, abnormalizing the normal. So when you read the personality disorders especially, you're reading, as you read them, it's basically saying the ordinary human experience of sin, idolatry, the need to repent, of challenges in relationships, that ordinary human experience is somehow inhuman. You are an abnormal human. You're in a different category from the rest of us. We have to treat you differently. When the reality is, as we look at all of these diagnoses, there are diagnoses that are given, diagnoses that are given to humans made in the image of God who are sinners and need a savior. There is a commonality between the least psychotic person ever and a schizophrenic and that they are both sinners in need of a savior. That unites, it does not divide us. And when we have a diagnosis for everyone, we can almost have like these different subgroups of people who need to, to have a completely different world to live in. When the reality is we live in God's world. We live in the world as he created it. And I have more in common with the schizophrenic than I have different from them. I need a savior. They need a savior. And so dehumanizing or abnormalizing sinful behavior. And finally, I made up a word here so you can spell it however you want. Expertizing care. Making it so that care is the realm of the expert rather than the realm of the friend. And so we have a lot of, or, or we could say, as a realm of the expert instead of the realm of the church or, or the pastor, where there's this idea that my friend has this diagnosis. Okay, now I know it's someone else's job to help them because I can't possibly help someone with that diagnosis. They have schizophrenia. That's a doctor problem, not a brother in Christ problem. And so we other them and we leave the care to the experts because we've labeled them and we now have this whole, they, they're off my plate. Glad that I was able to solve that problem. Good for me. That's, that's not, that, that's horrible, right? Instead, as a friend, we ought to be able to love even the person with the diagnosis. And I hope again that I am not here to, uh, communicating that all of the diagnoses are invalid and wrong and incorrect and that there's not anything wrong with these people. There are things that are wrong with us. There are uh, illnesses of the, of the mind. There are things that we suffer from. But we still treat people as humans. And we can hide behind a diagnosis and uh, treat people as less than human. Are there benefits to diagnoses? I would argue that there are. Uh, it does emphasize that other people do experience life differently from me emphasizes that people do experience life differently from me. They are not different from me in the sense that they are not human like me. We have more in common than we have different, but there are different experiences 
There are different ways of processing the world. And if I understand that someone processes the world in a different way, I might treat them differently. So again, to use an example of my kids, I have one child who feels love deeply when it is communicated through touch. You guys can figure out which one it is. One of my children just always wants a hug. One of my children needs to be forced to give hugs through the threat of public shame. Uh, I told him, I teach chapel. I said, if you don't hug your mom at home, I will hug you on the platform at school. And it's really, it's increased the hugs. Uh, but we have, we have different kids who process things differently. If I went the next three months of never hugging Ainsley, it would affect her deeply. If I went the three, next three months of never hugging Haddon, he would be like, what, something happened? Uh, this has been great. Right? And they're just two different people functioning differently. And sometimes a diagnosis like this, this set of, uh, this set of symptoms can help me to realize, okay, there's someone who actually have, approaches the world differently than me. I can have some compassion and some understanding. I can have some unique insight into what they're thinking, how they're thinking, and I can try and help them. It also allows us to identify with foreign experiences. Have you ever tried to describe how you're feeling to someone who does not feel the same way as you? Uh, that's it's really hard. There are some people who feel their feelings very, very much. And there are some people who go through life with some thick skin. They don't feel everything that happens to them. Try being the person who feels your feelings and explain your feelings to the person who doesn't feel their feelings. If you're an anxious person and you're talking to a person who never struggles with anxiety, their response is, well, then stop worrying. Like, why? Uh, what's the problem? I'm not worried about this. We're in the same situation. And we can, we, we, it's helpful to have some tools to understand that people process things differently than us. It clarifies potential catastrophic results of a person's struggles, which might not otherwise be readily apparent. So I've mentioned a friend with bipolar before. Understanding that bipolar people have a tendency to resist medication because they don't want to go back to the depressive, uh, the depressive episode and have a tendency to commit suicide because they crash hard helps to better care for the person who's experiencing those symptoms, right? Because we can learn from a bunch of other people. If you run into that for the first time, you're confused. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what the danger signs are. You don't know what the risks are. You're like, is there like, is his brain just gonna stop working? He's so manic. Like, is that a problem here? What, what's going on? A diagnosis can help us understand, well, this often is accompanied by this. And so I should be on guard for it. I should be watching out for it. It also identifies patterns that clarify and distinguish underlying sin, suffering issues. Sometimes a diagnosis comes from thousands of people who experience one symptom, often experiencing this symptom. And so if I understand that and know someone who's experiencing this symptom, I'm gonna be better informed that, ah, this might be related to that. And again, it's not explaining them, but it's saying these two things go together. So if you're dealing with this, you ought to at least be on guard for this and you ought to be aware of it. Finally, it supports our understanding of the body's influence on the soul. Our body and our soul influence one another. Your sin affects your body. Your body affects your soul. 
cannot make you sin, but it can make you suffer. It can be a temptation to sin. So let's get practical. How do we respond? Living in a diagnostic, psychologized world where it sometimes seems like everyone has something that describes their behaviors and every bad behavior gets labeled as a disease. As a helper, move towards the weak and the hard as Christ moved towards you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ dies for the weak and the sinful. He moves towards those who are weak and sinful. And so we, when we run into people who are particularly struggling, ought to be motivated to go towards them rather than to go away from them. And very often diagnoses are our excuse to move away instead of move towards. And so when we see people who are struggling, we ought move towards them. Finally, do not, or next, do not be satisfied with describing symptoms. Seek the heart. Don't just describe the symptoms. Seek the heart. In Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. The Lord knows us. We ought to seek to know one another as well. We ought to live that out. He knows us. We should be like him. We should seek out the heart. The purpose in a man's heart, Proverbs 20, is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. We ought to seek to know those who are created in God's image, to love them rather, uh, rather than dismissing them. If understanding a similarity of experiences that they might have with some other people helps us to know them better, that is a helpful tool. If it's an excuse to know them less, it is wicked. Then... We ought to confront sin and comfort the suffering. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You don't comfort him. You restore him. If there is sin, you deal with sin. But on the other hand, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We also comfort in affliction. And so this, this, the fact that there are a lot of people with diagnoses should cause us to be careful, to be thoughtful, to be biblical, and to comfort those who are afflicted and restore those who are in sin. Don't flip them. Don't, don't seek to confront the, the afflicted. Don't seek to comfort the sinful. Now, how do you tell the difference? You work really hard. You trust the Lord. You know your Bible. It's hard. There's not an easy answer to that. There are times when that's a huge struggle of knowing which one. Fortunately, the God of the universe has revealed himself to us in his word. And so we have a tool. We have the tool, the only tool that is sufficient to the task, but we can't leave it behind. We must be utterly dependent on the word of God as we confront sin and comfort suffering. How about as a sufferer, if you are someone who suffers, who uh, might be described by one of these diagnoses, 
Similarly, address sin and suffering appropriately. If you have sinned, repent. You cannot repent of things that aren't sin. That's not a category that fits. But if you have sinned, repent. And then if you are afflicted, if you're suffering, seek the God of all comfort. But we, we don't just categorize ourselves and leave it behind and say, this is who I am. I can't deal with it. We, we respond appropriately. Recognize that your struggle does not exclude you from the benefits of the ordinary means of grace. A lot of times someone who suffers from one of these, uh, has one of these diagnoses, who suffers from this, would say, well, I need a special thing for this. I'm in a unique character, uh, category. I need this. God has given all that we need for life and godliness in his word. You are strengthened by the proclamation of the word, by the fellowship of believers, by prayer, by reading the word of God, by giving to the church, by being part of the church, by doing all of the ordinary things that God calls all Christians to do. You could have the weirdest sounding disorder in this whole 800 page book of weird sounding disorders and you still need the preaching of the word of God and you still need the fellowship of the believers and you still need prayer. You still need all the ordinary means. It is not as if in the past 50 years with the discovery of antidepressants and antipsychotic medications that we finally answered all the problems of history. No one could be godly before 1960. It's not how it works. All that is necessary for life and godliness is present in the word of God. And so seek those things that God has given to all people, the ordinary means of grace, all all believers. Seek those for help. Your struggle does not exclude you from their benefits. Finally, recognize the interrelated complexity of your experience. Seemingly distinct problems may actually be related to one another. So there are some... Oftentimes, this affects this and affects this. I think we see it kind of clearly in something like anxiety and sleeplessness. We see the connection between the two of them. But that is true of other things as well, where we might be experiencing two different things that might have a a common cause. Um, And so I think it's helpful to know that and to try to understand those sorts of things. Uh, Yes. Yes, go for it. Hmm. So I would probably, yeah, I would probably not call those the ordinary means of grace because they are not reserved for Christians, right? So I would say an unbeliever can't participate in the ordinary means of grace. They can do good, like life habits, living with wisdom to some measure, they can live with wisdom. But I would say if I'm going to use that term, and I think historically I'm in good company here, I'm saying something that God gives specifically to Christians. That's not to dispute that any of those things are good things that people should pursue. I just wouldn't use that label. Yeah, Mark? If you're differentiating common grace and means of grace. Yes, yes. Okay, so means of grace is a reform term specifically for the things that God has ordained for his church. Common grace is this kind of generic term for the good that God has provided the world even apart from Christ. That's not the best way to say that. But, yeah, the saving work of Christ. Thanks, Mark. So then we could categorize, categorize those things in addressing a sufferer. 
Mm -hmm. We can say these are common things to all people that help, like open your blinds, let the sun in. So Absolutely. Not, your, your depression can be alleviated, your endorphins can be, you know, you can raise your endorphin level by doing these certain things. Right. So if I was talking to someone who's dealing with depression, one of the key things, key uh, points of advice that I would give them is do something. Like anything. Like if you do something you don't want to do, you'll be glad it's done when you're done with it, so you'll feel better. If you do something you want to do, you'll enjoy doing it, so you'll feel better. The worst thing you can do with depression is nothing. And that applies to the saint and the sinner equally. And so that is, that is a grace that everyone should participate in. Right? You are dismissed. Thanks for your attention. Next week we are talking about medicine. So...